Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books of Political Science. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk to the author of Cities for Sale, Municipalities as Public Relations and Marketing Firms, Stacey Zavataro. Stacey, have I pronounced your last name correctly? And welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And actually, you pronounced it perfectly. Oh, good, good. I, I uh, don't always do that, so I'm glad that I do. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's a pleasure to have read the book. Uh, before we get to it, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you are now, where you've been. Uh, give, give us a little sense of who you are. Sure, happy to. Um, currently, I'm an assistant professor of public administration at Mississippi State University. Uh, that is not Ole Miss. Ole Miss, I think by contract, I have to call that school up north. Uh, we, mm-hmm. are the, uh, we are the Bulldogs down here in Starkville. Uh, before coming to Starkville, I taught for two years at University of Texas Brownsville. Uh, before there, I was finishing up my doctoral work at uh, Florida Atlantic University uh, in Boca Raton, Florida. Florida is uh, my home state. And um, while working on my dissertation, uh, I was working for the local government back home where I grew up, Coral Springs, Florida. I had worked there in high school, volunteered there in high school, did my undergraduate work at the University of Florida, came back to do my doctoral studies, and went right back to work for the local government. Yeah, and you know, your, your book really um, reflects some of your, your background, and you, you do get the sense when you're reading the book that, that you've observed a lot of this uh, very closely. Um, and so we'll talk about uh, some of those observations you make, but let's start a little bit grander, uh, both with the, you know, the title of the book, but also sort of the organizing metaphor of the book, which is that um, uh, that is a city as a public relations or marketing firm. Um, and before we even get to what the metaphor suggests, why this metaphor and, and not others? Uh, what does viewing cities through this lens allow us to see and learn that, that other metaphors don't allow? Yeah, and I think for me, I love using metaphor. I love teaching through metaphor because it just flips our brains a little bit and gets us to see something that we probably encounter every single day but haven't really considered in another you know, form, shape, or fashion. So why I chose this particular metaphor, municipalities, excuse me, as public relations and marketing firms is because that professional experience that you talked about, I kind of saw this shift happening in local governments, trying to see, well, gosh, if this is happening maybe here, is this happening somewhere else? And so the answer, short answer to that question was yes. A lot, actually. So when I tried to filter that through what's going on in the field of public administration in general, using a metaphor that I, you know, you can derive from a business sort of lens made sense. What do I mean by what's going on in public admin PA in general? There's, as, as you know, Heath, a big shift in governance structures toward running your government like a business, for good or for ill. And there are scholars certainly on both sides of that debate. However, it's happening. And so that only that changes the values 
of, you know, the government agency adopting these kind of strategies, which, you know, include anything from new public management, total quality management, more team-based structures of governance, entrepreneurial governments, collapsing hierarchies, etc. Um, so one of the things that also came about when you start running you know, your government like a business is then promoting your agency and your organization and your city as a business. So that's why, to me, that grander metaphor, you know, seeing it as a PR and marketing firm kind of made sense. So what that metaphor can then show us is how some of these activities, you know, regarding promotion and branding and marketing, which still give people a little bit of a queasy stomach in public administration when I say those words, it actually shows us, you know, how money is being filtered, why certain policies are being written in a certain way. Gosh, why even you know, text looks a certain way, sounds a certain way, and what you can you know, use in these platforms, especially you mean digital platforms that you know, people like you and I are going to check first before even driving to a place. So it really just shows us more of if business-minded governance is happening, this metaphor is another way of looking at some of these policies and practices associated with that shift. Yeah, and this isn't just a metaphor. Yeah. It's really just reinforce what you what you're measuring mm -hmm. um, in the ways that you measure it. So you described six, uh, I think, what you refer to as selling tactics yeah. that cities may use. So briefly, what are those tactics? Um, what, what are the things that that cities can do if they orient themselves in the way that you've just described? Again, for good or for bad. Right. Um, so how I um, derived these, you know, first was uh, I can still remember kind of actually taking all this data, all of these, um, you know, promotional strategies that cities were doing, collected all of these documents from cities across the country, and really tried to figure out what are the patterns, what am I seeing here, and, you know, eventually doing it kind of primitively, writing all of these things down on index cards that I could move easily and categorize. And so once the stacks were, you know, piled in a way that I felt comfortable with, I thought, okay, now what do I call these things, basically? So... And one of the um, one of the comments that I get often when I when I talk about some of these tactics are, okay, we don't have a lot of money. We're a small local government. What can we do? So, what I'll share with you know with you regarding these tactics is there are some you know obviously long term strategic ways to use these, and then there are more you know short term things that you can do for not a lot of, of money. And I can certainly give some examples. So the first kind of selling tactic that I found was just an overall effort toward branding, and I purposefully list uh, in my book branding as the first because ideally when carried fully, you know, all of the policies and practices for your city will have that long-term strategic goal that help improve the place brand, the place, you know, sort of image, what you and I as you know, consumers, as visitors, as potential new residents would, you know, want to associate with, with the place. So I have to be clear, though, that, that but branding, though, how people often confuse it as branding equals a logo or branding equals a slogan. Well, those are aspects of any brand. But the brand is the more of the, those are the sort of physical embodiments, if you will, the things you can see. But there's also this, you know, hedonistic, affective, you know, affective, emotional attachment that we have to places especially. You know, I said at the beginning, you know, Florida's my home state. I still have that sort of attachment to Florida. So that's what place branding can become. So yes, 
that simple way is, you know, if you want to, as, as a local government, have a new logo and a slogan, that's a good first step toward a longer-term holistic branding you know, strategy. And you can see these in practice by going to almost any local government um, website. The second one that I you know, realized a lot of cities were using, you know, I just called simply media relations, right? How a local government organization interacts with or maybe doesn't interact with, um, you know, outside media, of course, radio, television, now more prominently bloggers, right? So cities might on, you know, the one extreme have a dedicated media relations person or staff or team who can, you know, write press releases, gosh, maybe daily, at least several times a week, really reach out to, you know, a lot of the local media through different, you know, news events, press conferences, whatnot. Well, okay, again, we can go back to the local government that doesn't have the resources to hire somebody full-time. Well, maybe there's an intern, maybe there's a local college nearby where you can get somebody to get the ball rolling, even if it's somebody already internal to the organization to reach out to different local media and say, hey, what do we need? What can we as the local government do for you all? Because what um, folks have to keep in mind is that that media government relationship is often symbiotic. Both need each other. So there's long-term ways to do that through, you know, press releases, through your website updates, through a media kit, through online press rooms. But if we don't have all that, it's as simple as introducing, you know, one entity certainly to certainly to the other. The next thing that I found cities to be using a lot are what I called in-house publications. And, and Heath, you can almost think of that as the flip side of what I just said. So we have media relations where we're really trying to work with the external media groups. And then you have in-house publications, which are usually produced by the local government entity. For example, um, Coral Springs, where I used to work, had uh, City Magazine. A lot of cities are going that route. Um, city-run television stations, flyers, brochures, you know, the banners that you see on light poles, those kinds of things. So anything that the city is producing in-house, almost as a way to get around that media filter and really start telling their own stories with their own language, their own pictures, you know, their own, you know, going back to branding, logo, slogan, if that's the route that cities, you know, are going. So, Cities acting as PR and marketing firms then, you know, use these strategies to build you know, relationships with internal, you know, sort of publics then, you know, as well. So you can see a difference in sometimes how cities are are using you know, in-house publications. And again, people say, gosh, don't have the money to do big banners as you come into the city. That's fine. In the age of digital technology, for example, you could have your local residents opt into an e-news program that will give them, you know, different you know, categories of what's going on in your place. So you will still reach them directly rather than having to use that media sort of filter. Uh, the next thing that I found pretty prominently um, and gaining more prominence, when it's a little tricky, is what I call using um, volunteers or outside organizations as PR tools, PR surrogates, and a shorthand for this is brand ambassadors. Essentially what this tactic is, is cities using other people, you know, maybe people who are not employed directly for the local government to tell their story. Now why does this help? Well, because if you see, you know, your neighbor maybe on the city-run television talking about, you know, city acts, 
you might be more prone to believe them than maybe that potentially you know scary bureaucrat who works for <laughs> works for the local government. Mm-hmm. So there's there's different ways that you can create these brand ambassadors. You you should really start um, ideally uh, internally. So you have to have people working for your organization, any organization that really buy into you know the mission and your vision and your strategy, so they can sell it internally and be happy with you know that person organization fit is crucial, and then you work on the outside. So for an example, what um, we did once in Coral Springs as for our annual State of the City presentation, found, you know, some local volunteers who are, you know, on a bunch of committees for the city, some prominent business owners, and just sat them down and on camera had them talk about, you know, how has living in Coral Springs helped, you know, your business? What do you get out of volunteering? And so it's the people telling your story instead. Again, you're, you know, if you're listening and saying, gosh, our city doesn't have all that money to do this high-tech video production. It can be even as simple as putting Heath Brown's story of City X on the website and and featuring him as a prominent local resident and saying why City X is so so great. Again, it's those brand ambassadors that can change the tone of of how you're telling your, your story. Now, the last two tactics, in my opinion, work together pretty well and are the are more sort of ephemeral, a little bit more effective and emotional, if you will. Because it's easy kind of for me to see, okay, did a city put out a press release? Yes or no. Does a city do its own magazine? Yes or no. Those are pretty easy. But when you're talking about things like my, the fifth tactic, which I called aesthetic and effective appeal, that's a little bit trickier because aesthetics clearly means something different to me than it would my neighbor, than it would their neighbor, etc. But these, when cities do this, are those image-laden appeals to why you want to be in this city, why you want to visit this city. Um, The clearest manifestation I found of this was public art. And cities using public art to really tell a story of the place, really give a feel for the place and say, you know, why public art helps, why it helps community, right? Um, If you can't do a whole public art program, there's something simply that you can do like a street cleanup and get the community involved and talk about improving aesthetics in the place. And the final tactic that I found a lot was um, a built environment. And that, in the time of the initial research, sustainability was really sort of the way to go. Cities still are certainly doing this, but you're hearing a lot more talk about, you know, the built environment. You're seeing more turn toward parks, linear parks. Uh, Heath, I know you said you're in New York. I just had an opportunity to visit the High Line, for example, an old rail bed that's turned into this beautiful, just walkable area now. That's built environment. So instead of letting these old rail beds just sort of sit there, now you actually have a use for them that was crowded and lovely when I was walking on it. So essentially, these are all ways, and if you do it holistically, all of these things eventually build back to create this branding strategy and have cities operate and thinking through all of these as ways to promote the place, which is meaning acting as a PR and marketing firm. Now, when I was reading this, I was I was particularly drawn to one of your cities, not the city that I currently live in, but the one that I used to live in, Roanoke, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if you could talk just about that that one case. You chose a number of cities. And maybe even before we talk about Roanoke, you can talk a little bit about your choice of, of cities to focus on. But then maybe you can come to, to Roanoke and, and tell us a little bit more 
about uh, the research that you did in, in Roanoke, the observations you took, um, how it structured uh, this strategy, which, which of the tactics it's used, or um, was there a particular tactic that stands out to you that uh, uh, the city of Roanoke used particularly effectively, and maybe another that was using ineffectively? Talk about uh, the cases that you look at. Yeah, um so I, I tried to pick a variety of cities uh, going into this project because I really wanted to see, um, is there a difference between you know, small and large, geographical differences, socioeconomic differences? In other words, is it just really rich cities that are doing this? And I found largely the answer is no. Um, you know, one of the cities that I looked at later was um, Ann Kenny, Iowa, small town. Actually, one of my students was like, I've driven through there, Dr. Z. There's really not a lot there. But if you look at their you know, branding strategies, they're actually pretty good. So I have a nice variety, but I picked um, cities. They're either where tourists come and spend a lot of money. So you expect those places, you know, New York City, Orlando, Florida, Las Vegas, of course, to have pretty stout uh, branding campaigns. Uh, another reason alludes to what I mentioned before about this overall shift in public administration toward a business mind. So I looked for cities that were cited in the literature, in the scholar literature, um, that had you know top managerial uh, practices. And usually that meant things like balanced scorecard, total quality management. So that's why you see cities like Charlotte, um, Kingsport, Tennessee, even actually Coral Springs was cited several times in the literature because the city earned a Baldridge Award, uh, usually reserved for um, corporations. And the other reason was just honestly purposive. I wanted to see, gosh, Detroit, for example. How's Detroit doing at mm -hmm. uh, promoting some of their efforts? And everyone knows kind of the collapse, the internal collapse of the city of and the governing structure there. And people are in prison all over the place. So I was like, hmm, what's happening there? Roanoke happened to be one of those cities that, um, you know, was just kind of cited for these top practices. So I wanted to know what was, was going on. And, you know, to my surprise, you know, I thought did a, an interesting job. Now, I, I should be candid that a lot, all of this research came from gathering documents, content analysis, um, so not visits, unfortunately, to a lot of these cities. And I do say doing all this research makes me makes me want to travel to uh, all of mm -hmm. these places. But what I thought, uh, to answer your question, Heath, that Roanoke did particularly well was really having its brand standards in place. You go right to the Roanoke uh, City of Roanoke, not the Convention Visitors Bureau, but the City of Roanoke website, and smack in front of you is their brand logo. No, like, oh, that's neat. Um, you actually, if you if you go to their website and you see the About Us, there's a section on the Roanoke brand. And the from what they describe about, you know, the branding strategy, we're really interested in what the local community thought. And that's a big key. Oftentimes the problem with um, local governments trying to brand is making it an internal sort of top down, you know, in, in other words, the city manager, for example, or the mayor, if you're in a strong mayor form of government, might say, here's what we're going to be, make it happen. Okay, That's, that doesn't often take into account, though, how the people who are the most direct recipients and beneficiaries of these branding practices in terms of the economic development opportunity, for example, um, really feel about their place. So um, Roanoke did what some other cities, you know, do and actually did studies, did charrettes, 
reached out, had committees, and made sure all of that data, you know, was put was put in place and then tied it back so all these people that helped, you know, could really really see, oh yeah, I I might you know, hey, that's my comment up there. I talked about, you know, the parks and, and whatnot. So then interestingly enough, which I, I hadn't seen in the cities that I'd studied and I'm sure it's out there, so I would love to hear from from your listeners and alert me to other cases. But um Roanoke what I what did what I did something I thought was interesting, which was tested their brand, not just amongst the community. So they had that community involvement, they had that community buy-in but tested it really amongst other big cities in the country internationally to see how people would respond to it. So, you know, after doing all that, which takes time and money and personnel resources that I realize a lot of places don't have, but that's actually what needs to go into it. So you can see exactly what that star image means. The city can tell you why they have this, how this helps. There's brand standards then, you know, how can that star look? Where can it go? So there's actually trying to protect the integrity of that brand. And uh, I mean, another quick example of Roanoke, and I said earlier, gosh, you know, if you can't do a whole, you know, uh, in-house publication program, and you can have your people sign up for a newsletter. Roanoke does that. You can customize it. Now I'm seeing a big move into, of course, we all are, social media and reaching out to people that way. Again, with all the social media, it's branded. You know you were going to you know, the city of Roanoke's Twitter feed, for example. So there's no question that you're getting you know, the information. So what, what cities like Roanoke are, are doing and are striving to do are getting that good balance between, okay, we know we have the image, we know we have our brand identity to protect, but we also need to give you, our residents, information. So not only are we going to do, for example, a you know citizen survey every year, every two years, we're going to actually share that data with you and then show you later on, now that we see what you're saying, ideally, how we're going to make changes based on that. So, so Roanoke was one of the exemplars for me of, of a place of Phoenix, Arizona, for example, was another one of getting that that interesting balance of not trending so, so far into image that you forget that you're still a service provider. Yeah, and I guess that's what I wanted to, to ask you about, because a lot of this makes sense. A lot of it is, is logical. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but politics and, and, and governance sometimes isn't logical <laughs> and, and certainly isn't always neat. Mm. Um, what if you could talk just a little bit about the political dimensions of mm-hmm. this? Um, what are the costs? Uh, what are the consequences of getting this wrong? Mm. Um, what are the what are the stakes at play for city managers or, or mayors who who invest in a a, a brand um, that either doesn't stick uh, or that works for the uh, attracting businesses but not individuals mm-hmm. or for attracting older residents mm-hmm. to the city but not families. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and talking about that, have you gotten any feedback from, from people who, you know, look at the title of your book, Cities for Sale, and say, oh, this must be a critique mm. of this? Um, uh, and, and there are aspects of your book that are critical, mm. but it's, it's not on the whole uh, critical mm. of the idea. So, so put us a little bit into the political context of this. Um, 
talk talk to us about uh, about the, that side of the of the issue. Yeah, and, and that's a that's a great um, issue and a great question because you know our, our elected officials and you know even appointed officials, you know our city managers and whatnot are in tricky spots because often you these are the folks that you are looking to as you know, your representatives, you know, who, you know, the folks that you've entrusted, you know, to, hey, you promised me mayor development and I don't see any. Hey, you know, city manager in your annual budget letter, you know, you told me you're going to fix all these roads and we actually don't have any money to do that. So you can see how people get disappointed. Um, the problem, you know, with, with that political, with that political dimension is trying to balance all the stakeholder demands. Because, you know, if you point out, you know, what happens if you only attract certain kinds of families? What happens if you're only attracting business? To me, what I always talk about when I talk to um, the, the groups that you're, you're mentioning, you know, mayors and city officials and whatnot, is you have to step back and first, before deciding to do any of this, say, do we even need a brand? Is there enough here? Because if you do have, say, a city of you know, 150, 500, 1,000 people, maybe the answer genuinely to that question is no. We can't afford it. We're not going to be able to do the things that we want to be able to do. And if we have already scarce resources, how do we justify to our tax base? Well, we're spending all these thousands of dollars on basically what ends up for a lot of places becoming a zero-sum game. You're either coming to my place or you're not. We're not going to do this whole regional thing, uh, although, in my opinion, cities should be, especially if you do fall into that smaller you know, category, pooling resources. So you can see then, it's a long way to say, you can see then how you know, mayors and our city managers are in this precarious kind of position. But if you do ask yourself that question, and the answer is yes, we want to try, then it goes back to what you said of, okay, what do we need to do? Who or what do we want to attract? Do we need to attract more big business? Okay, that's a whole different sort of, you know, marketing campaign. Do we need to attract families? Okay, if the answer is yes, well, do we actually have the infrastructure to do that? Do we have the school system to do that? You could clean up your downtown. You could redevelop your downtown. You could put in parks. But if you don't have schools, Families are not going to, you know, move to a system where they can't have, you know, a high quality education. So again, there you're talking about a resource drain. Maybe that money would have been better allocated uh, in a different way. So what I I tend to argue, and you know, I do take uh, a critical stance, as you said, not my book, but some of the other pieces that I've done, um, especially toward cities that move, as I alluded to before kind of way too much toward the branding and promotion. You run into issues where, one, people start ignoring it, uh, either your internal employees or, you know, external people to the city, so it's not really achieving uh, what you want. Another issue is when your image and identity don't match. The brand identity is what you as the government organization, again, I say government, that's what I study, but what the organization you know, tries to put out. So going back to, you know, Roanoke, that sort of star logo with the mountain in the back I talked about, that's kind of the visual brand identity. But the brand image is what you and I conjure when we think of a place. 
right? I said, you told us the place where you're currently living, you know, has a lot of, you know, images associated with it. People either want to travel to New York City because, you know, it's going to be constant shows, all this good food, and other people say, oh, it's too dangerous, can't go there. So it's a different, you know, brand mm -hmm. image, despite the city trying to put out an identity of, look, you know, look, we've cleaned up. Um, so when those two things don't necessarily align, you run into a gap between, you know, promise and delivery. Again, if you've promised this new family or these new families that you want to attract, you know, yeah, we have great schools, only to find out, well, maybe they're a D school. That's not a good thing. So mm -hmm. if you can't deliver what you're promising, you run into different gaps. One of the other problems that I've, I've found is something called auto-communication, and it's exactly what it sounds. You're talking to yourself at some point. And this is, as you can, as you can imagine, Heath, dangerous for um, governments, especially those that are trying to learn and trying to grow and hear what their citizens are saying. This becomes a problem when, for example, you keep pushing out information that says, uh, we're really focusing, for example, on aesthetics. Aesthetics, aesthetics. It's everywhere. Look, we're cleaning up the city. Look, we've filled this pothole. Okay, and maybe you have. That might be great. But then what happens if you do that survey and all of a sudden, you know, the people who are now paying attention to the aesthetics it goes up? But does that mean anything? Did you really learn anything? Or did you just hear what you wanted to hear? So you could see how that might stall if you don't re work really hard as you know Phoenix and Roanoke and other cities are doing to balance that you have this fine fine line of education and too much promotion and you talked about well what are one of the other pit pitfalls um, not to not to pick on Coral Springs because it is my home but there is an article in the local paper by an opinion columnist who basically said the seventy thousand dollars that the city spent on its latest branding campaign uh, was, to put it nicely, he used different words, but to put it nicely was basically a waste, um, considering that the brand came out to be, quote, everything under the sun. And that's a, a problem that I alluded to before, because you're in Florida. Everything in Florida mm -hmm. is under the sun. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you have to find your, your, uh, your own identity that really means something to the people to whom you're trying to serve and to whom you're trying to attract. So, yeah, I agree with you that this is not a panacea, that this is not something that every city everywhere needs to be striving toward. This is why if cities want to venture this way, they have to do it carefully, correctly, and make sure you're getting buy-in from these you know, different stakeholder groups, which will ideally pave the way to do this a little bit easier. Yeah, uh, Susan, I really enjoyed the book. Um, uh, I think the book could be read both by uh, scholars in public administration, political science, but I also suspect that there's a, quite a large audience out there among those that, that actually do politics and, yeah. and do government and uh, local officials, city managers, and, and, and at other levels of government as well. And your book is about cities, but I think there are, are ways that this is applicable to um, county management and, and even state management. Mm -hmm. um, as you acknowledged at the start of the book, um, again, Stacey's book is Cities for Sale, Municipalities as Public Relations and Marketing Firms, published by SUNY Press in 2013, available at their website and elsewhere. Stacy, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here.